And so what we do uh, every year at this time, actually, as a church, is we, as a, the kids are preparing to go back to school and families are preparing to kind of return to their, their normal rhythms of life after the summer months, we take a few Sundays in September to, to talk about who we are as a church and our vision as a church and our mission and our purpose as a church and the, the intention behind these messages and why we do them at this time of year is we want to bring clarity and we want to bring focus so that as we return to our normal routines, we make sure that our rhythms align with the rhythms of Jesus and our routines reflect the fact that he is, in fact, Lord of our lives and Lord over this church. And so it's a, a kind of checkup for us to reflect on who we are, why we gather, and what we are commanded to be. Because let's face it, we can slip from that, right? We can get distracted from that in our personal lives and as a church. We can lose focus and we can lose our intentionality. And me as your pastor, I can get distracted by sometimes not the essential things, but the less essential things, and they can start to take up too much space. And so we need to be reminded as a church and as a people, what is our purpose? What is our mission? So the reason why I believe doing these kinds of series is so important, it's important for us to reflect on these things, is because I believe based on what I read in the Word of God, that the local church here and throughout the world is the engine that God uses to bring hope and salvation to the world. Right? Like that, this is the engine that God has chosen to use to bring the hope of Jesus to the world. We have been given a mission and a message that is the only hope for each and every man and woman who has ever lived. Right? Apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ making hearts new, men and women are lost, and their lives will lead to death and destruction. Men and women need to know that they are sinners, that because of the fall that happened in the Garden of Eden, all of us, as Scripture said, are born into sin. There are none good. And Jesus Christ was sent by his Father so that we could have life and we could have it abundantly. And apart from Jesus Christ, there is no life. There is no abundance. And nothing ultimately matters and all leads to destruction. People need to know this good news of the gospel. And so it is very important that we have clarity about our message and our mission. Because each one of you in here this morning who knows Jesus Christ, you are a part of God's plan. We are a part of God's plan and that he has ordained for the spread of his gospel the only hope that there is for the world. So his church is the engine by which the gospel will be communicated and displayed to those who do not know Jesus Christ. This is the central purpose of the church. It is not an overstatement to say that we are in a battle for souls of men and women. And we are on the front lines of that battle. So we need to know our marching orders. We need to know why we're here. And that's what I want us to focus on over the next four weeks. And we're going to do that this year by looking at the very specific means that the Lord has given his church in order to accomplish the task that he set before us. And the overarching question that we want to answer in this series is how do we accomplish the task 
that Jesus has given us? How do we communicate and display the saving grace, the saving message of the gospel of Jesus Christ? What are the ordained means that the Lord has given his church to display his glory, to transform souls and bring people into his kingdom? Because whatever those means are, they must be central to what we do. And if they're not, then I and collectively we as a body need to make some adjustments to ensure that they are. I've entitled this series, The Ordinary Means of Grace. And if you've not heard that term before, it's a term that's used amongst Protestant churches to describe the ordinances or the practices that the Lord has given his church to grow disciples, to communicate his message and display, display his glory. Sam Amidi, he quips about the ordinary means of grace. He says, it's simply a reminder to Jesus's church not to do weird stuff. Just to do what's in the Bible. And so over the next four weeks, we're going to look at the four primary means of grace that God has given his church. And I'm not going to leave you hanging as to what they are. They're not a mystery. The ordinary means of grace are the word of God. Preached and sung and read. They're the prayers of God's people. Baptism. And the Lord's Supper. These are the primary means that the Lord has given his church for men and women to experience the grace of Jesus Christ, for men and women who are apart from Jesus Christ to be brought into the kingdom and gain saving grace. And so we want to be a church that rests on these things and works in these things. Because ultimately, embracing the ordinary means of grace is not just about having good theology. That's not what this is about. Embracing the ordinary means of grace is about surrender. It's about trust. It's about our hearts. Because it comes down to this. Do we trust that God will work through the means that he has ordained for his church... Or do we think that we can improve upon God's plan with our wisdom and our means? I believe Jesus' church, and I'm, I'm speaking specifically Jesus' church in our culture. I can't speak well to other cultures. But we have to be especially careful that we do not rely on our ideas to grow the Lord's church. Because the temptation to do so is significant based on the expectations of our culture. Our culture loves entertainment. People love experiences. And there is a battle to get people's attention. And the temptation for churches in our culture is to do whatever works to get people's attention that temptation is strong whatever gets people in the door whatever fills the seats but to build a church centered around these kinds of pragmatic practices as opposed to the ordinary means of grace can cause a major problem in fact we see this all the time in our culture 
And it's not meant as a judgment of churches who do it. It is meant as a caution for us. Because we can all be tempted by the same thing. But we want to avoid the pull of pragmatism, which can start innocently. It can start very innocently with a desire to see more people come and to hear about Jesus. But I believe ultimately bringing people in the door with whatever works, whatever catches their attention, will result in people coming to church for an experience that happens to have some Jesus sprinkled into it instead of coming to church because Christ is everything. And being with the body of believers is enough because that is how he's called us to live. That's what it should be all about. One of the ways that you know your faith is genuine is you just have to be in the gathering with brothers and sisters. You just have to be under the word of God, surrounded with those who know him, singing however off key to the king who saved you. That's how you know your faith is genuine. You are compelled by the Spirit of God to be here because it is a massive part of your life in Jesus Christ. If you go to church for the atmosphere of the auditorium, not here, obviously, (laughs) the entertainment, the great music production, the amusing pastor, again, not here, (laughs) that should throw up some red flags for you. If a church brings people in because they have great production and great lights and dramatic elements and a really dynamic speaker that teaches principles from the Bible but doesn't really teach the Bible itself, they have fun activities, bouncy castles for kids, all of these things that aren't bad, that may have a place in church. But if all of these things are, are, they're what the world wants. And if much of a church's ministry is based around those things, such a church could accidentally and is likely unwittingly training up shallow Christians at best and at worst filling seats with men and women who do not know Jesus but want the church experience for the sake of their family and will happily sit through an hour of good music and and entertainment and an engaging self-help talk based on biblical principles in order to get it because it's entertaining. The goal of the local church is salvation of souls in Jesus' name and growing disciples who are deeply devoted to Jesus Christ. Man cannot accomplish that through pragmatic and entertaining practices. Only the Spirit of God can. Only the Spirit of God can grow a desire for Jesus Christ in a person. Only the Spirit of God can take what is literally dead, according to the Word, and make it life. And so we better follow God's way because that is how He works. And men and women's souls literally depend on it. I see it as the difference as doing church or being the church. And I want to be the church. I don't want it just be something that I do. First Corinthians 2, 1 to 5, Paul says, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. 
so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul did not want to draw people with the wisdom of men, because ultimately the wisdom of men is empty. He wants to draw people with the wisdom of God. So today, we're going to look at the first means of grace that the Lord has given. And probably the one that I'm most passionate about, especially as a preacher, the Word of God. Preached and sung and read. So let's pray. Father, I echo Kate's words as she prayed to you, Lord, I'm so thankful for your Word. I'm thankful that your word is living. It's not just like any other book. Your word is alive. And through the power of your spirit, you change us when we read it and we meditate on it and we study it. So, Father, I pray that as we preach about the power of your word this morning, that you would change hearts, that you would reignite a passion for your word in this place. Reignite a passion in our hearts where we just want to be in the Bible. To learn about you and know more about you and understand you better so that we may be those disciples that you call us to be. Father, I'm asking that you would work in the hearts of the men and women here. Make us more into the image of Jesus, I pray. In your name. Amen. I want you to imagine for a moment that you are a first century traveler And you're passing through the Hinnom Valley just outside of Jerusalem. It's a Friday afternoon and you're traveling along the outer wall of Jerusalem. And as you walk, you can see in the distance that that dreaded hill known as Golgotha in Aramaic. It's been given that name, which means the place of the skull, because the Romans who ruled the land performed their executions on that hill. Everybody knows about it. You can see on the hill that there's this large crowd that have gathered and there's three crucifixes erected. You've seen this sight before in your travels around Jerusalem. Though the crowd on this particular Friday seems a bit bigger, they seem a little bit more stirred up than usual. You can hear shouts in the distance, but you can't really make out what the people are saying. You can just make out three figures, three men on the crosses. And the crowd's attention, for some reason, seems to be directed on the man in the center. They seem to really hate that man. Their jeers are directed at him. And you naturally think to yourself, well, that man must have done something really awful. He must be an especially evil criminal. He must have done something horrible and deserve, however awful crucifixion is, deserve exactly what he's getting. And if you turned aside at that moment and you entered the gates of Jerusalem and sometime later you experience an earthquake and then suddenly some unusual darkness in the middle of the day, you would not connect the dots that it had anything to do with those three criminals on the cross. You wouldn't know that there was anything extraordinary going on. But what if your curiosity over the crowd's anger drew you to go see what was happening? You stand amongst the crowds and you notice the man whom everyone seemed to hate was wearing a crown of thorns. And there was a special message 
nailed above his head that the other two crosses didn't have that said king of the Jews. Then you hear whisperings amongst the crowd. This man's name is Jesus. And you start to notice that scattered amongst the crowd, some men and some women are actually weeping. And they're talking about how this Jesus was the Messiah that the Jews had waited so long for. And you hear one of the criminals on the cross ask the man, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And the man looks at him and speaks and says, today you will be with me in paradise. And a little while later, the man speaks again. It is finished. Then he breathes his last and immediately the earthquakes and darkness covers the land. And even the hardened Roman soldiers are terrified and one of them declares with a sense of regret in his voice, surely this was the son of God. After seeing the words on the cross, hearing the words spoken by the man hanging there, by the criminal next to him, by the people present, by the soldiers, you would come away from there having a different perspective of what just happened than if you turned away and had not seen what was written, had not heard what was said and spoken. Your eyes would have told you something. But without the context that the words provided, you would have not given the crucifixion another thought. It was what your ears heard that opened a door for you to start on a journey that could lead you to salvation if your heart was pierced by what you heard. I use this illustration to highlight the reality that images or signs only have meaning when they are accompanied by words that explain them. This is why God's word preached and sung and read is the primary ordinance of Jesus' church. And we'll look at each aspect of that, starting with and focusing mostly on the preached word, not because it's what I do, though I absolutely love it, but because the preaching of God's word is to be prioritized. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Let me just ask you a question. Show of hands. If you know Jesus, how many of you came to faith in Christ because you heard the word preached? Not necessarily in a church, Maybe it was someone who spoke to you. Maybe it was a loved one. But it was someone preaching the word of Christ that caused you to come to faith in Jesus. Show of hands. God has ordained the preaching of his word to be the primary way in which men and women come to faith in Jesus. This is one of the reasons why I personally really dislike the saying because I, I think it's completely false Preach the gospel and use words if you have to. I, I really hate that saying. It's, it's believed that Francis of Assisi said it. 
But it's been picked up in modern times by evangelicals. And, and I'll be honest with how I view it. I think it's been picked up as an excuse. I think it's a cop-out. And I don't think it's true. Modern evangelicals marry up this saying with the words of Jesus in Matthew 5.16. Jesus said, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so the, the conclusion is, live a godly life, do good deeds, and that is you preaching the gospel. And there's an element of truth to that, absolutely. But the problem is, That doesn't work in our day and age. In a time where the vast majority of people have no radar at all for God. The inevitable response to good deeds that you hear over and over and over again. You're a good person. You're such a good person. When you look at Jesus' words in Matthew 5.16... It's actually obvious that is not what he meant at all. Because where does our light come from? It doesn't come from us. It comes from him. It comes from the gospel. And so how do we let our light shine? We let it shine by speaking about Jesus and the gospel and doing good works so that people understand, wait a second, your good works are because of Jesus. So that they marry the two together. The saying should be, preach the gospel, do good deeds, but you have to use words. God has ordained the preaching of the word, Romans 10, 17. That's what it says, the hearing of it as the catalyst to faith. And when you think about it, it's actually amazing that this is what God does. It's amazing to me because... How good are we at retaining information that is spoken to us? We're terrible at it. We are not good at it at all. I know by this afternoon that you will forget 90% of what I say. (laughs) You will remember the overarching message that I was talking about, but you won't be able to recall my words. And yet this is how God has chosen to work in people. Matt McCullough, he writes this about the preaching of God's word. He says, the preaching of God's word is not a strategy that flows from anthropological insight. We don't assume that people are best formed by 40 minutes talks that move ideas from one mind to another. We know people aren't hardwired for formation by what passes through their ears and into their minds. But this is entirely beside the point. Old childless men don't normally father nations. Small young men don't normally slay giants. Crucified men don't normally bring life to the dead. I love what Matt McCullough is saying there. He's highlighting the fact that the priest's word of God, being the way in which God does his work, doesn't make sense on a natural level based on how we take in information. But God accomplishes so many things through means that don't make sense. Like 100-year-old Abraham and Sarah who should not have been able to have kids. And God has chosen the preaching of his word to save souls and sanctify saints. And he does so because it shows his strength. It displays his ability and his power and his glory. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.21, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. That's amazing. The folly of what we preach save those who believe. 1 Corinthians 1.25, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than than men. The preaching of the word works because God works in supernatural ways. It is not a natural thing. It is a supernatural thing that when the word goes out, it does not return void. Isaiah 55 verse 10 to 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. That's an amazing verse about the word of God and what he does with it. If you go through the Old Testament and the New Testament, it has always been the proclamation of God's word to people as the primary way that he works in hearts and lives from the proclamation of the law on Mount Sinai. The the commands of God communicated by the priests to his people. The rebukes and the warnings God given to his people through the prophets. Jesus preaching throughout all of the towns that he could. Teaching people through parables. Instructing his disciples. Mark 138. Jesus says, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came. To Peter preaching at Pentecost and 3,000 souls coming to faith. To the apostles in Acts chapter 6 verse 2 saying it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. To Paul preaching throughout Asia Minor on his three missionary journeys. 1 Corinthians 1.17 For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. That's a sermon in itself. To the charge that Paul gave to Timothy. The charge that Paul gave to Titus. 1 Timothy 4.13 Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. 2 Timothy 4, 1-2, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. The preached word of God is the primary means by which faith comes. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Jesus Christ, And so we will always be a church in which the preached word of God is central to what we do for the sake of the saints and for the sake of the one who comes in this door and does not know Jesus Christ and needs to hear the truth of the grace that God has available for them through him. Yeah. <laughs> Did you just hit the pew? The word preached. Let's talk about the word sung. We've been talking about the singing of the word a lot lately. How it's so significant. I don't want to dwell on it long, but, but we've said that the word sung is, is honoring to the Lord. And at the same time, it is 
us going to battle against the enemy. Because there's power in the praise of God's people as we declare through song what is true. That's what we, the first song we sang today, right? This is how I fight my battles. It's not just a cutesy song. This is how we fight battles, by praising the Lord. It fights battles in our own hearts when lies come against us. And we can look past those lies to see the truth of God. It fights battles against the enemy when he's lying to us, when he's coming against us. We declare the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. God has given his people song as an instrument of war. During our our worship night, we looked at the example from 2 Chronicles 20. And I've gone back to it a couple times because I just think it's so fascinating. But it it talks about the enemies of Israel that were coming against them. And and the Lord tells Jehoshaphat, who is the king at that time, that the battle of Jehoshaphat is not yours. It's not the people's. It is mine. The people only need to stand firm, hold their position, and see the salvation of the Lord come. And so Jehoshaphat understands it's not a physical battle that's coming against them, not just a physical battle. It is a spiritual one. And so what does he do? Something absolutely insane. He puts the choir in front of the army. That's nuts. And the, the word says that when the choir started to sing and started to praise, the Lord fought on their behalf and their enemy was completely routed. It's amazing. And this is what the singing of the word does for God's people. Like the Israelites, we need to stand firm, hold our position and see the salvation of the Lord as we stand firm through the praise of his name. Like our songs on top of that are also a confirmation of who we are in Christ and a way of encouraging one another in the faith. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Neil Wollard, he says, congregational singing is the sound of people saved by grace. I love that. It's also one of the ways the Spirit of God grows godliness in the Lord's people. He's actually growing godliness in us while we, spin, while we sing. Ephesians 5, 18 to 19. Do not get drunk with wine, that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And so let us be a people who sing loud, who sing boldly to our King. When we gather together, we are declaring His goodness. We are declaring that the battle has been won against our sin, that Jesus Christ is our conqueror, that we are a people living under grace. Like That should cause us to blow the windows out of this place because we're so loud. And last... The word preached, or the word read. Oh, I want to go back to preached again. The the word read. We are under the preaching of the word once a week. Unless you listen to podcasts and stuff like that. But we're under the preaching of the word, the local preaching of the word once a week. But we have the privilege of being under the reading of the word every day. And so we should want that. And and I want to be very simple and straightforward as to why we should want that. 
We should be in the word regularly because of everything that God's word says it accomplishes in our lives. And I'm thankful to Pastor Mike Bullmore who compiled the list so that I didn't have to. I'll just give you a few examples. Hebrews 4.12 says that the word is a sword. Jeremiah 23.29 says the word is a hammer. Isaiah 55.10 that we just looked at, it is rain that waters and grows seed. Mark 4.14 talks about it's a seed that grows in us. Romans 10.17, we've already looked at, the word brings faith. 1 Peter 1.23, the word gives new life. Hebrew, John 17.17, 17, the word sanctifies us. Hebrews 4.12, it searches and it convicts God's people. John 8.31-32, the word brings freedom to God's people. Psalm 119.25, the word renews God's people. Psalm 19, it revives our soul and causes our hearts to rejoice. Is that enough reason to be in the word of God right there? Yes. There is so much there and there's so many other things that we could look at. You could compile your own endless list of reasons for why the word of God is so incredible. And so we will always be a church where the word is central, where the reading of it is encouraged. This is one of the reasons why on our Tuesday night groups, it is centered around scripture. It's not centered around a resource. Resources are great. But one of the problems in Jesus' church is people don't read the word enough. We read other people's interpretation of the word. And so our Tuesday nights are centered around the word so that we are in it and studying it and learning it so that it gets into our heart and renews us and waters us and grows us and all these things that I just listed. We need to know this word. So I want to end with just two very quick kind of practical applications of of why the word of God is so important. What does it mean for us when we leave here? And the first thing that I want to say is the preached word is not just a rule for pastors. In case you were thinking that I was talking just about pastors, that's not true. The preached word of God, the ministering of the word of God is not just a role for pastors. I have a specific role to do on a Sunday morning to build you up in the word. But preaching the word is a role for all God's people. It is necessary in evangelistic opportunities. It has to go outside of these walls. It has to preach not just in here outside of these walls, to your family members, to your neighbors, to your friends. And and when you preach the word of God, know in your heart that all of the things that I've said about what it does remains true as a follower of Jesus. It's not just here on Sunday. It's anywhere that the word is preached. There is not a special anointing here that doesn't go with you. So be faithful servants of Jesus Christ. It it must be spoken to men and women in order for them to know the Lord. And the second practical application I would say is just what we talked about. 
in, in Hebrews 4.12, it says the word is a sword. It's a sword for you. Ephesians 6 talks about the armor of God. And the sword, which is the word of God, is the only offensive weapon that we have as followers of Christ. We have a bunch of defensive weapons, but we only have one offensive weapon, and that's the word of God. And so through the week, the word of God is your sword, and you use it the way that Jesus did when he was in the wilderness, tempted by Satan. He used the word of God to fight against his enemy. And that is available to all of us. And that is why it is so important for it to be preached and sung and read so that it is in our hearts so that we can then use it, unsheath that sword and go to war. So that when temptation comes against me, I have something from the word of God to fight that. So that when fear comes against me, I can say, no, I have not been given a spirit of fear, but of love. So that when all of these things through the week, anxiety, whatever it might be, come against us, we pull from the word of God and we go to war. And that is why it matters to be taught and preached the word of God. It is your armory for every day of your life. And so use it. Amen.